0: Welcome to Friends of Europe's Frankie Speaking podcast special on the war in Ukraine. I'm your host, Tracy Dafters, and this is episode 14 recorded on Thursday, the 2nd of June, 2022. In this episode, I'm joined by our senior fellows for peace, security, and defence, Paul Taylor and Jamie Shea. Energy is top of the agenda. With the EU deal to ban Russian oil this week, we discuss how effective these oil sanctions are likely to be and whether the EU would go a step further and adopt an embargo on Russian gas. We asked Jamie for an update on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and Russia's ongoing military strategy. Paul considers the role that Turkey can play in mediation. And finally, we ask... Is the West still united or losing its way when it comes to the strategic approach towards the war in Ukraine? Tune in now to find out what they have to say. So energy is still top of the agenda uh, at the moment with the recent moves by Russia to cut gas to the Netherlands, Denmark and partially to Germany. uh, And the EU Council meeting in Brussels uh, to discuss the proposed sixth round of sanctions. Um, ended in a a sort of deal to ban most of the Russian oil. Let's unpick some of these points. Um, Paul, how effective do you think the oil sanctions decided by the EU this week are likely to be? And what will their impact be on energy markets?
1: Well, I think it'll be quite effective over uh, over the course of the year, let's say, not perhaps immediately. Um, And people sort of you know, get a bit ahead of themselves when they expect immediate impact and immediate shutoffs and so on, um, given the the need for countries to actually transition to other supplies. It's easier with oil than it is with gas because most most oil is fungible. Uh, Relatively little of it comes through pipelines, whereas most gas comes through pipelines and relatively little is available on the spot market. So it's a different market. Russia was supplying Uh, the European Union with 2.2 million barrels a day of uh, oil plus 1.2 million of oil products uh, such as petrol uh, and diesel. Um, And uh, altogether, Russia's energy sales to uh, the the Europe uh, oil and gas were producing about 1 billion a day in revenue. Well, um, if everybody keeps their word and if the EU signs off on the the small print of this uh, agreement that was reached this week, which is still being negotiated by diplomats, um, then basically two thirds of that um, revenue should stop immediately um, and up to 90% by the end of the year with a little bit left uh, in pipeline supplies to uh, Hungary, Slovakia uh, and the Czech Republic, which will continue for a bit longer. Um, That's a big hit for Moscow um, they don't immediately have other people that they can sell it to. And if they do uh, try to export it to others, they'll probably have to do so at a steep discount. So, um, yes, that's a, uh, uh, you know, a, but it's all within a context that Russia's oil revenue, has actually risen by 50% this year, according to the International Energy Agency, because of higher prices. And why are the prices higher? Well, uh, largely because of the Ukraine war, one or two other factors as well that are in, in, in affecting supply but the number one factor is the uh, ukraine war so you know uh, it, it's a bit of swings and roundabouts i don't think it'll bring for a moment that it'll bring uh, russia to its knees or change president putin's mind about the, the course of the war um but i do think that uh, it will make a big difference over time and especially i think that um you know Patterns of of supply will change in the long run. Uh, That's even more true with gas, although I don't think there'll be an immediate gas embargo. But, you know, patterns of supply will change uh, for the long run. And the Europeans will not go back to buying massive amounts of Russian oil or Russian gas when this war is over. So there's a long term lose for Russia. It may not affect Putin's calculus but it ought to affect at least russia's trajectory
0: i mean you mentioned gas uh, and we've seen of course as i mentioned that uh russia has already cut off gas to netherlands denmark and only partially uh, to germany wouldn't it be wise for the eu to actually make the, the move now and and adopt an embargo on russian gas or is that too big a sacrifice for the european co- economy to make
1: I think it's totally unrealistic. And I think that um, it's being demanded, um, you know, by people who who may not have the whole picture of the European economy in their minds, or who simply think that this war is so important that, you know, sod the economy, sod the the population and so on. But um, most European leaders are not governed by that sort of thinking. It's true that no sooner was the, um, uh, you know, partial oil embargo adopted, than you immediately had um, the leaders of the Baltic states, Poland, and so on, and of course Ukraine itself, President Zelensky, um, uh, uh, crying for a, a gas embargo, and you know they would do, wouldn't they? Um, it's it, it, they are the people most closely affected by this, but not, but their interests don't uh, coincide totally um, with those of, of of other European countries. So um, they'll have to be. And there there is already in shape a a compromise. And the compromise is a plan which the European Commission has put forward to accelerate the phasing out of dependency on gas, and specifically on Russian gas. And I think that will go ahead. I'm not saying it's unthinkable that there might be at some stage a gas embargo if there were uh, greater atrocities, if, if, if Russia escalated the war. Um, If it used uh, banned weapons, for example, you know, uh, you could well imagine that the use of chemical weapons would lead to greater political pressure um, for something like that. But, you know, all of the economic studies that have been done suggest that uh, an immediate cutoff of Russian gas um, would, you know, plunge the whole of Europe into a severe recession. Now, we've had two severe recessions in the last decade with the uh, financial and Eurozone crisis, and then with COVID. And I think most politicians in Western Europe, uh, but also, you know, uh, around the world feel that, you know, we ought to be avoiding that kind of damage. And there's a general point that, you know, should we be be applying sanctions that hurt ourselves more than they hurt the Russians?
0: Isn't there a risk though, that if we don't put the embargo on that, um you know, that Putin will continue to cut off gas supplies um, to other countries?
1: Well, if Putin does that, I mean, first of all, we must be ready for that. We must be preparing for that. And this energy transition plan is the best way to do it. You know, the best answer in the long term to dependency on on Russia uh, is the energy transition to renewable, green, uh, clean energy or, you know, or energy from nuclear uh, uh, that doesn't require um, Russian supplies, uh, and doesn't pollute, or at least doesn't uh, create carbon pollution. Um, so that, that, that's the kind of long term uh, answer. But uh, we must be ready for Russia to cut off more. But if it does, you know, I think it'll be cutting off its nose to spite its face. Um, you yeah. know, I, I think that our, our uh, pressure as c- consumers and as customers of Russia, uh, as Russia's basically captive market in a lot of this because it doesn't have pipelines to for, through which it can expand, export all this gas to other parts of the world it may over time build them but that takes pipelines take years to build they they can't be built uh, in a couple of months so as to suddenly switch and send, send all this gas to china or to india so you know he'd be cutting off his nose to spite his face and i think he doesn't have the upper hand in this in this energy uh, contest that he, that some people may think he has.
0: Thank you, um, Paul. Jamie, I'd like to bring you in now. Um, Can you give us an update of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine um, from a military point of view?
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, Well, the Russians have had a couple of good weeks. Um, uh, We started out uh, back in February, early March, uh, with a narrative that we all of course love to hear. Uh, plucky Ukrainians uh, fighting back against the Russians, uh, Russian military incompetence, you know, Putin sort of overreaching and having made an enormous mistake in invading Ukraine in the first place. Uh, Western unity in the EU and NATO, the sanctions that Paul was talking about, and you know, the, a, a kind of feel-good factor, even in the middle of a, a very tragic war, that that somehow you know David uh, was uh, beating Goliath, and it, this, of course, was always too black and white. It was always too too simplistic. We live in the real world. Uh, And so the reality check was bound to sort of hit us sooner or later. And I think over the last couple of weeks, uh, that reality check has hit us. I mean, number one, the Russians are not silly. Uh, They've learned from their mistakes. They've uh, regrouped in the Donbass in the East, uh, where they can concentrate their forces. They can use their artillery uh, to better effect. Uh, Instead of trying to capture a lot of Ukraine quickly and failing, they're now trying to take Ukraine apart Square inch by square inch, or village by village, city by city, uh, by using artillery. Uh, that means that they have uh, close supply uh, lines uh, to uh, Russia itself. They're able to make better use of the Russian separatist forces in the Donbass, their allies, who are accused by the way of using torture and extremely brutal tactics, but who are also armed by uh, uh, the Russians. Uh, and they're able to uh, prevent the kind of enormous losses that they were suffering in the first phase of the war. Uh, by sitting back from the battlefield and uh, using uh, artillery. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, the pressure is on the Ukrainians. So, President Zelensky has announced they're losing 60 to 100 soldiers killed every day. Uh, that's not sustainable indefinitely for a, an army which doesn't really go much beyond 40,000 uh, troops, no matter how motivated uh, they 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 are. Uh, of course, uh, if they're losing 100,000 killed every day, they must be suffering two to three hundred wounded uh, at the very least as well, um, and, and so clearly the Ukrainians are now coming under uh, pressure. Um, in a way, uh, I think the West has missed an opportunity because Uh, Some of the uh, multiple launch rocket systems, heavy artillery, uh, drones, air defense systems that, for example, United States the UK, Germany are going to send uh, the Ukrainians now, they should have been sent uh, six weeks ago, uh, when the Russians were retreating from Kiev and Kharkiv uh, and were regrouping because if the Ukrainians had had that artillery, then they could have stopped the Russians concentrating and they could have stopped the Russians moving forward. The problem now is that Ukrainians can't rely upon a defensive strategy any longer. If they're going to retake their territory, they're going to have to go on the offense. Uh, and that's going to be far more difficult, particularly if the Russians dig in uh, to fortified uh, positions. Um, so I think we're now at a really sort of crucial juncture of the war, uh, because uh, as you can see with the decision of uh, President Biden a couple of days ago to uh, send uh, these multiple rocket systems, the High HIMARS, as, as it's called in particular, the high mobility uh, rocket artillery system with a range of about 70 uh, kilometers, um, the U.S. hesitated. To do this for a, a long time, fearing that the Ukrainians could use these artillery systems actually to strike targets inside Russia, thereby escalating the war. But the fact that the administration is now giving the go ahead, uh, for example, also for the Grey Eagle uh, uh, army uh, drone uh, with Hellfire missiles, you know, much more significant firepower. The fact that you know, the US has now changed its mind and, and has decided to take the risk uh, to give these weapons to the Ukrainians, notwithstanding, of course, the danger of escalation, I think, you know, is, is a sign that the West is worried that Ukraine otherwise uh, might suffer a defeat. Uh, and in fact, Putin could be emboldened, you know, not just to capture the Donbass, but to think, well, you know, the, the wind is in my sails and I'm going to sort of you know go back to the earlier strategy uh, of taking uh, cities like uh, uh, Kharkiv or, or, or Kiev or, or even Lvov in, in, in the West. Uh, of, of course, the Russians will now double down to try to stop these weapons arriving. Yesterday, they attacked uh, railway lines uh, near Lvov to try to interdict the supply routes. And also the Russians may decide to sort of really, you know, go on the offensive big time over the next few weeks to capture more territory uh, before they could be stopped uh, due to the arrival of these more sophisticated American and other uh, other British-German uh, weapon systems as well. Uh, yesterday, interestingly, with the Secretary-General of NATO uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., meeting Secretary of State Blinken, uh, Blinken was saying, well, the objective now is to basically you know, give the Ukrainians what they need to sort of you know, go on the offensive a bit, capture some territory back. It's not clear exactly how much territory, but then to be in a stronger position at the uh, peace talks and peace negotiations. So in, in a nutshell, it doesn't seem at the moment that President Zelensky's objective of liberating all of Ukraine's territory uh, is going to be possible, at least not in the short term. It doesn't seem possible either that we can go back to the situation uh, before February the 24th uh, with the Russians in control of Crimea and a little bit of the Donbass. I think we're going to obviously have to contend with russia may being pushed back uh, but being in control of quite more territory and i think the key task now is to try to sort of figure out what kind of outcome uh, is both feasible and desirable I mean, what is desirable is not always feasible. And what is feasible, of course, is not always desirable. We have to balance the two factors, but but we have to have a realistic strategy of you know, what Ukraine can li- realistically recapture uh, at an acceptable price, uh, because nobody has an interest in thousands more people being killed here. Uh, for example, uh, the Ukrainians have launched a, a diversion uh, offensive around Mikaleev and Kherson in the south and uh, it, it, because if the Russians are concentrating in Donbass they may be leaving their flanks open elsewhere uh, and that of course could be a useful strategy again to to divert Russian forces away from the thrust in the Donbass but, but in a nutshell, uh, the tide seems to have turned a bit. Um, You know, the Russians have learned from their mistakes, the Ukrainians are now suffering from the obvious battle fatigue with few resources with limited manpower attrition that was bound to show in the end, and in terms of you know how much more support we're willing to put into this fight, how the West considers the stakes, the risks it wants to take, but above all, what realistic outcome uh, we can still achieve uh, and sort of halt the Russians. I I think the next few weeks, they're gonna gonna have to be some pretty difficult decisions taken at the NATO summit at the end of June uh, and in the Western camp more generally.
0: Thanks, Jamie. I mean, you touched on peace talks, um, and we heard earlier this week that uh, Turkish President Erdogan had told Putin uh, he's ready to help end the war. I mean, what role is Turkey playing in mediation? Paul, perhaps, or, or Jamie?
2: I'll leave this to Paul, first and foremost, because he knows a lot about Turkey, but I'll come in afterwards.
0: Over to you, Paul.
1: Well, Turkey's tried to position itself from the outset Uh, as a credible mediator. It uh, has taken some action against Russia, for example, barring uh, Russian uh, uh, warships from going through the uh, Bosphorus and the Turkish Straits uh, and entering the Black Sea. Um, But it hasn't joined the Western sanctions against uh, uh, Russia. And therefore, it's been in a position where um, it's tried to be even-handed. It's it's given quite a lot of support to uh, Ukraine, including um, uh, weapons supplies before the war. Uh, it was one of the main suppliers of, for example, drones to Ukraine before the war. Um, so it's it, it has, a as it were, a foot in both camps. Um, and uh, there's a, a strong domestic reason uh, for President Erdogan to try and do this, which is he's in trouble at home. Uh, his eco- economy is, is in a mess. Uh, partly due to his own policies, and therefore he needs kind of diversions. Some of those diversions are around nationalism, as we've seen with his current playing of the the anti-Kurdish card to try and uh, uh, um, uh, hold up uh, Finnish and Swedish membership of uh, NATO with demands about uh, fighting uh, Kurdish militants. But also, um, we've seen it in, in, in Syria, and we've seen it with Greece. Um, and so, playing the, the the mediator also has that potential domestic benefit for for Erdogan. So the question is, what is there there to negotiate, uh, but is either side in the conflict willing to negotiate at this point? The Russians, I think, feel they have the upper hand and want to press their offensive more before they will uh, sit down to negotiations. So they're saying Ukraine is making negotiations impossible. Um, The Ukrainians are are now on the back foot, as Jamie said uh, very rightly, um, but that doesn't necessarily make them more willing to negotiate. In fact, on the contrary, it may be difficult for them in these circumstances, um, and they are expecting big deliveries of American equipment. So there is one role that Turkey might play, uh, and which has been flagged, which is the possibility of contributing at least to uh, the idea of a humanitarian corridor that could enable uh, the release of all that grain that is stored in in Ukraine and uh, and that the world needs. And so there have been various ideas put forward. Most recently, for example, French President uh, uh, Macron put forward the idea of a UN Security Council resolution on releasing that grain, allowing uh, the export of that grain for humanitarian purposes. Um, and there have been suggestions as to how that could be done. At the moment, the entire Ukrainian coast is blockaded. It's blockaded by the Russian Navy, uh, although the Russian Navy's had to stand back quite a long way because uh, Ukraine's been getting uh, acquiring more uh, long-range, uh, uh, shorter ship missiles. But also, um, it's, it's blockaded because the Ukrainians themselves have laid uh, uh, naval mines to, 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 to prevent Russia from an amphibious landing or from, from using uh, the coastline. So um, there would have to be minesweeping done. I don't believe that this kind of operation could be done without the consent and agreement of Russia. The question is, why would Russia have an interest in doing this? Uh, because at the moment, Russia is pressing the propaganda line that it's Western sanctions uh, that are preventing, uh, that, are, that are starving the third world. Uh, the developing world, you know, big countries like Egypt that are hugely dependent on grain from uh, the Black Sea and particularly from Ukraine. Um, So one of the possibilities is that Russia suffers sufficient pressure diplomatically and in the propaganda field that it feels it would be to its advantage um, to allow the evacuation of this this grain from uh, uh, Odessa in particular, the one port where, which is still in Ukrainian hands and that could be used to export substantial amounts of grain. The European Union has tried to put in place a sort of overland solution to try and get this stored grain um, uh, released. But in fact, it turns out that they can only do a fraction. They wanted to try and uh, release 20 million uh, tons before the, the next harvest comes in this summer. Uh, it looks like they, could, they can't do more than 5 million tons over land and over rail, and even that uh, may be optimistic. So um, really the, the sea route is, is crucial, uh, and Turkey holds one of the keys to it because it controls the Turkish Straits, and it can authorize ships to come in or not to come in in order to try and release this grain. And it would require, for example, minesweepers probably from NATO countries to come in and to clear the mines before you could start sending uh, 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 freighters out with this uh, grain on it. So, you know, all of that would require logistics, which would have to be, it might not be NATO branded, I think that would be unacceptable to Turkey, but it would certainly have to involve some NATO member states uh, as uh, providers of some of the key capabilities. And it would be smart to try and involve, for example, the Egyptian Navy as well so that people can say, see that the countries that actually need this grain have a role in releasing it from captivity in Ukraine.
0: Jamie, would you like to come in there um, and add?
2: Uh... I, I think Paul gave a very good uh, uh, overview and, and, and his last point was also the point I wanted to make. I mean, th- this is being negotiated by Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres. He's been trying for a long time. Paul set out the parameters very well. And, and so clearly, uh, as a face-saving device for the Russians at the very least, it would have to be under some kind of UN umbrella, even though Lithuania, a NATO member, has suggested the idea uh, of uh, NATO ships, not NATO itself, but at least uh, NATO providing the escort to uh, vessels. But I tend to agree with Paul that uh, uh, it would be helpful in terms of putting pressure on the Russians to have Egyptians and other uh, recipient countries involved too with a, a very big UN flag. Uh, but there are problems, I mean, number one, Uh, Of course, uh, it requires not just the Russians to lift the blockade, but the Ukrainians have to take away all of their mines. Uh, And there have been lots of mines floating around the Black Sea, so it's not quite clear that the Ukrainians could do this uh, and know where all of the mines uh, uh, are. Um, And of course, the commercial shipping companies would have to be prepared, you know, insurance, security risks, and so on. Uh, Many of their vessels have been damaged already in the Black Sea at the beginning of the conflict. They would have to be prepared to play ball. here too. The other thing is that the danger would be that you would have a couple of symbolic, you know, transshipments, uh, but uh, very soon then the uh, the door would close. Uh, this this thing would have to keep going for a very long time, not just to send all of that Ukraine uh, Ukrainian grain to market, the 20 million tons that Paul referred to, but also, of course, to deal with this year's harvest, which is now being planted. Uh, uh, although the Ukrainian Ministry Minister of Agriculture this week was saying that because of the war and you know labor shortage years and the russians occupying uh, some of the uh, uh, the main agricultural regions the harvest is not likely to be more than 50 percent of what it normally would be i also you know just broadening the picture a little bit uh, beyond what paul said about the immediate Black Sea issue. It was interesting that President Maki Sall of, uh, of Senegal, who is the president of the African Union, was talking to the EU summit in Brussels this week. And he said that it, because of drought and climate change in Africa itself, uh, he's anticipating that grain production will be 30 to 50% down this year. Um, I, I was watching a program on the BBC yesterday evening about prolonged drought in Southern California, which is blighting the uh, West uh, West United States crop, um, uh, it's not looking good. Uh, you know, if Ukrainian grain is is down fifty percent, African grain fifty percent, the U.S. grain, China is also experiencing quite la- has experienced quite large flooding and has announced also a significant grain reduction. So, um, beyond you know the immediate issue of Ukraine, uh, we are going to have a very 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 major uh, world uh, famine problem uh, to contend with, which. Could stretch over uh, many years. Of course, if we could do something uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine, that would bring some immediate relief, given that uh, Ukrainian grain supplies calories to 440 million people in the world, and uh, notably, as Paul mentioned, countries in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, Russia and Ukraine together, about 30% of the total. Um, uh, and, and of course, uh, part of the deal that Paul's referring to would have to also facilitate uh, the Russian ability to get their grain out. Uh, uh, as Paul writes said uh, under the sanctions Russian grain is not embargoed but the problem for the Russians is shipping is embargoed and insurance premiums uh, are unobtainable for the Russians so uh, the West might have to take a painful decision to partially lift some of the sanctions at least against the shipping so that Russia could also see a benefit to itself and not just to its Ukrainian adversary in being able to get more of its fertilizer and and grain uh, to the market. The the real also problem for the Ukrainians is that there are reports that the Russians have confiscated quite significant amounts of Ukrainian grain. And as they opened the port of Mariupol, which the Russians have now captured this week, uh, they announced that you know, they were using Mariupol to ship uh, uh, Ukrainian grain, uh, not to Ethiopia or Somalia, uh, but back to Russia, uh, further hoarding uh, their own stock. So we've got a, a much bigger problem uh, uh, here uh, and we have to keep you know, our eye on the, the global situation and the global supply of bottlenecks uh, uh, and not see, you know, the Ukrainian Black Sea issue as some kind of panacea, uh, which uh, not that Paul suggested it was, of course not, but which could sort of solve this issue overnight.
0: So in the beginning of the war in Ukraine, uh, the EU was united in its approach. Uh, but are we now seeing it losing its way? Are there cracks starting to appear?
1: I think there have always been cracks, and so um, uh, the, the, the 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 initial unity had been very well prepared ahead of the war, uh, and uh, you know showed how much the EU could really achieve uh, when it's got its ducks lined up in advance. But the longer the war goes on, the more difficult the decisions that have to be taken are, and the more they affect national interests uh, in a in a differentiated way. You know. You embargo Russian oil, it makes no difference really to the French, but it makes it 75% of Hungary's oil supply. So you, you where, where the impact is so different, inevitably there are different interests. That can be cushioned to some extent by European solidarity by saying, okay, you get hurt more, so we'll compensate you. But <coughs> you can't do that entirely through that kind of compensation. So inevitably there will be sticking points. Um, some of the sticking points are more political than, uh, you know, more EU political than strictly related only to the Ukraine war or to national economic interests. Uh, Hungary is on the EU's naughty seat because uh, of uh, Prime Minister Orbán's, you know, um, uh, <coughs> state capture, if you like, his his emasculation of the uh, judiciary, the public prosecution service his neutering of the media and capture by his cronies of much of the economy. Um, And so uh, the question is, the EU has been withholding funds from two countries, Poland and Hungary, because of their uh, behavior on the rule of law. And yet those are two frontline countries that are neighbors of Ukraine and that are vital for receiving refugees, for processing refugees, for shipping supplies to Ukraine. Hungary has not allowed that to happen on its territory. Poland has allowed lots and lots of supplies, military and civilian, to go through to Ukraine and has become a crucial hub. So recognizing that, the EU is now going to sort of take Poland off the naughty step by saying, well, if you meet a certain number of benchmarks, we will release the money to you gradually that we've been withholding. Hungary at the moment, all the money is still being withheld, but that may explain why Hungary was the standout this week uh, in, in, in holding up the agreement uh, on the oil sanctions and, and re- achieved a carve out. Um, how, will the EU remain united? I mean, there is a big east west divide, if you like, between those who really think that you know f- resisting Russia and uh, doing everything that can be done uh, to support Ukraine is the absolute priority and that everything else uh, uh, in terms of the EU's economy, uh, its energy transition is is secondary or tertiary compared to that overriding goal. That's basically the view of, I would say to a large extent, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania perhaps, um, uh, to to a perhaps lesser extent, the Czech Republic and uh, and Slovakia. Um, But it's not the view and, you know and to some extent the Nordic countries as well actually uh, but it's not the view in Western Europe where the, where the view of Western Europe is we must resist Russia we're in for the long term we will have to deal with Russia at some point in the future when all this is over and we uh, you know we can't do this by sacrificing our economy and our workers um, and therefore we have to do it in an orderly transitional way um, I think that's what the, United, the European Union will, will unite around that kind of approach. Uh, but I, I think there'll be a lot of noise that suggests it's extremely inadequate. You know, uh, there's been so much media criticism, for example, about the fact that it took 26 days to get an agreement on the oil embargo. Well, 26 days is kind of warp speed for the EU. You think it took, you know, four or five years to negotiate the British budget rebate back in the 80s. When I was a young reporter, you know, so the EU doesn't, you know, it, it requires a compromise of 27 countries that don't start off with identical issues. It requires, um, you know, putting things into legislative texts. Uh, it requires a lot of preparatory work, and there's a sort of instant impatience in the age of social media uh, and in the age of moral imperatives. That, that, that I, I, I must say, I. Uh, perhaps not because i'm'm I'm, I'm such an old fart. Um, you know, I find unrealistic and irritating.
0: Jamie,
2: uh, I think we're at, more or less at the end, so I'll have to be brief, Pracey. But yes, I mean, I I, I would not sort of uh, pull the alarm cord quite yet. Uh, although, you know, echoing Mrs. Thatcher uh, at the beginning of the first Gulf War in 1990, when she happened to be with George H.W. Bush in Aspen, Colorado, when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait uh, she famously said this is no time to go wobbly George and I and I think uh, as far as the West is concerned this is certainly no time to go wobbly um, first of all the Ukrainians have not yet, lot, yet lost the fight and, and with heavier weapons delivered more quickly uh, there is a possibility that they can staunch the Russian advance they can recapture uh, at least uh, some of their ports on the Black Sea uh, where I think the uh, Russians have left themselves in an exposed position they can put themselves in a strong position when eventually negotiations begin. Uh, At the very least, I think we have to make sure that uh, they don't lose more significant territory to the Russians, because uh, the more they they lose, as I said, the more Putin's appetite to continue the war uh, will be uh, whetted. So I think there is a solution there. But Obviously, the promises that, for example, the Germans have been making have to be kept, uh, and we need uh, deliveries fast. I I think, as Paul said, the EU has held up well. Inevitably, they're going to be carve-outs and opt-outs, but uh, it would have been far worse for the EU this week to have had to take oil completely out of the six sanctions package because there was no agreement at all that would have hurt its credibility. But we all know that sanctions take a long time, and we may be at the limit of what we can achieve uh, at the moment uh, uh, through uh, sanctions. Actions, uh, themselves, I think, on the other hand, you know, the sort of uh, defense revival uh, uh, on the back of Ukraine in the NATO countries continues, Finland and Sweden. Of course, we've spoken about that joining NATO, hopefully uh, with Turkish objections being lifted. You saw the uh, very positive outcome of the Danish referendum yesterday on uh, becoming a participant in EU defense, 66 to 33. That would have been unthinkable a few years ago. Um, uh, and you've seen countries like the Netherlands, yesterday announced budgetary increases and portugal send more troops to the east this may not of course help the ukrainians in the uh, immediate uh, future it's more about the defense of the eu or the defense of nato but it does at least show that europeans are beginning to realize that the world is a dangerous place and that they have to make a greater effort to look after uh, their own uh, security as well uh, as paul said you know in the eu uh the ukraine crisis is uh, not just about sanctions it's also an opportunity to to, uh, repatriate those supply lines, uh, reduce dependency, Paul was talking about that earlier on oil and gas, uh, conduct the green transition, which is needed for reasons far beyond uh, simply Russian uh, aggression but there are going to be some difficult choices uh, i saw a, an article this morning in the new york times where the author was saying well you know it's great you know not to be dependent upon unreliable unreliable russian oil any longer but if it pushes you back into the arms of the saudis <laughs> and the iranians and the venezuelans and all of these far from perfect partners in the past uh, it could be jumping out of the frying, frying pan into the fire so the, the eu will have to uh, obviously get used to doing a lot of geopolitics over the next couple of decades uh, and its ability to really handle that I think is going to be the biggest question mark of them all.
0: Thanks very much Jamie that's all we've got time for today so we'll uh, bring it to a close. Thank you to our speakers Paul Taylor and Jamie Shea and of course thank you to you our listeners for tuning in to episode 14 of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine.